This is the 200 Churches Podcast, episode 415. It is what God designed it to be. It is what Adam and Eve experienced every day in that Garden of Eden. They were not atheists walking around the Garden of Eden. Adam was not an atheist when he saw Eve naked for the first time. That was a moment of worship for Adam. And all the other pleasures of the Garden that they experienced, they experienced them theologically. They connected who God is, His goodness, His glory, His generosity, His creativity. They connected their experience of the food and the the sun's rise with the God who made them. And in the gospel, Christians are restored to that capacity to enjoy pleasures for God's sake, which makes the pleasures more pleasurable. Thank you for joining us on the 200 Churches Podcast. For more than 10 years, we've been providing ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. Allow me to introduce one of those pastors, Jeff Cady, one of the co-founders of 200 Churches and the lead pastor of Community Heights Church in Newton, Iowa. Take it away, Jeff. Thank you, Angela. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Jeff Cady. I am in the opulent and luxurious 200 Churches Podcast sound studio and world headquarters. And today I'm talking with a pastor, just a regular old pastor, not that old, and actually a little irregular, (laughs) Steve DeWitt. Steve DeWitt has written the book, Enjoying God in Everything, A Guide to Maximizing Life's Pleasures, Enjoying God in Everything. And I thought, this is a book that I need to talk to this author. I I don't review enough books like this that talk about the beauty of God and how we were created and, and where we derive pleasure from and how we attribute pleasure to the creator and not to the created thing. When he talks about when we eat a strawberry pie, we taste it, we say, oh, this is so good. But do we only think of the one who baked it, or do we think of the one who conceived of the strawberry and has them growing all over the place? So Steve DeWitt is going to talk to us about the beauty of God today. And I really love this because Steve, he served as senior pastor of Bethel Church since 1997. And it's a non-denominational church. It's in northwest Indiana kind of the Chicago land, about an hour outside of the city. And it ministers to its community across multiple campuses. It's a multi-site church. Steve's been there for to this year. It will be 26 years. And he has just faithfully, year after year, served. Some years, grinding it out. Other years, I would imagine, maybe a little easier. But But we all know long-term pastorates, have this ebb and flow in this mountain tops and valleys. And uh, Steve is just a great guy. I totally enjoyed my conversation with him. He's got a teaching ministry. It's called The Journey. Steve and his wife, Jennifer, they're the proud parents of two daughters. And Steve talks about them in this episode. They live in Crown Point, Indiana. But I'm so glad to share this episode with you, Pastor Stephen's involved in so many things is in his church, in his The Journey, basically broadcast ministry online, 
in Global Action, the Gospel Coalition. So if you check out the episode notes in whatever podcast player you're listening to this in, I'll have the links to all the different things that he's been involved in, and you can check him out. I found Steve to be refreshingly normal. I don't know what that says about a pastor, but for for everything he's been involved in and for the, the level of quality of this guy, just refreshingly normal, a great sense of humility, and you're going to hear that now as you listen to my conversation with Steve DeWitt. Steve DeWitt from... Where? I don't even know where you're from, Steve. Introduce yourself, but All welcome right. to the 200 Churches Podcast. I'm delighted to uh, join Jeff. And so you say, where am I from? Let me lead with where I'm really from. Okay. Well, I pastor in Indiana, but I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. So Ooh. I am a lifelong Hawkeye fan. I have family that live, I think, near nearer you there in Des Moines, Ankeny area. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I go to Iowa all the time for various things, mostly to see family. So I am, I am one of you. I am, I am in my heart, a Iowa dude. My dad was a 40 year career employee for John Deere. Like you don't get more blue blood (laughs) Iowa than the guy you're talking to here, but I do pastor in Indiana. I, I pastor in Northwest Indiana. It's actually only about an hour from Chicago, downtown Chicago. So yeah. we have a lot of people that live here that uh, work downtown. So we kind of say Chicago land, even though it's uh, it's in Indiana. So Crown Point, Indiana, um, is where I live, and uh, our ministry. Uh, we're a multi-site church, so we got uh, campuses around that are. Our hub, if you will, would be in in Crown Point. Okay, well, so that's interesting. But first, talk to, talk about your family, and then tell us about the multi site and how it works. Because, as you know, multi sites all they do it differently. There's no one method for those things. Yeah. Well, uh, my family. I am married to Jennifer. We've been married for ten years, and I have a a nine-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old daughter. I have served at Bethel Church for 25 years. I just crossed the 25-year mark um, this last uh, summer. So wow. I've been here a long time. Yeah. They, they've never been able to muster enough votes to get me out is all that that means. <laughs> and have you served as the lead pastor for that long? I have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a long time. So, tell us what it was like when you got there, and the short story of how it came to be what it is today. Well, Bethel, uh, Bethel comes out of the, the Independent Baptist um, movement back in the first part of the last century, and Bethel was a, I would say, kind of a normal Baptist Bible teaching uh, type church, and. I certainly have continued that tradition. I am a Bible teaching pastor. I came in 1997, and I was uh, young and full of vim and vigor, and uh, somehow God decided that he was going to uh, raise up the church. And so we have, for all these years, steadily grown. Uh, we became a non-denominational church many years ago, and so we We've got kind of a, it's a big tent of people that come to our church. We are an Mm -hmm. evangelical church. 
we would be, uh, you know, conservative doctrinally, but we try to connect with our our community in relevant ways. So we're sort of one of these rooted, relevant uh, churches, creedal, but also wanting to be contemporary. I'm an ex- expository preacher. That's my bread and butter. We uh, we we went multi-site in 2012. So it happened to be the same year I got married. In fact, the same summer I got married, the same month <laughs> I got married, we merged with another church. And so I call it my summer of merging uh, between the marriage and the and the multi-site. We added uh, a few more campuses since then. So we had five campuses of our church. We recently, just three weeks ago, we spun one of them off as an independent church plant. Uh, the first one in the history of our church, uh, first church plant. Nice. Yeah. And we're excited about uh, about them. That campus is in Gary, Indiana. So mm-hmm. it's a more of an urban, definitely multi-ethnic, if not, you know, mostly African-American. You know, we're excited to see what God does with that, with that church. So, you know, we are, uh, I've been here a long time. It's been a delight to see you know, the planting of the seeds, the growing, and, and now the fruit the fruit bearing. I'm kind of at that stage of things. And I got married when I was older. I was a single pastor, uh, senior pastor for 15 years, and I didn't get married till I was 44. And uh, that's a whole other kind of interesting story we could get into if you wanted to about uh, being single in ministry. But I'm at a wonderful season of life. I love my family and you know, couldn't love those two girls more than I do. And yeah. Can you imagine life without them? You know, I honestly think it's, it's a kind of a metaphysical question, but I, I'm like, where were they before they were like, how can <laughs> I can't imagine the universe without these two girls or my life yeah. without these two girls. And it really is a strange thing. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about how God has placed eternity in our hearts so that we can, you know, can't quite comprehend. That's one of the things that just kind of blows my mind of, how does how does a human being become? And once they're here, you can't imagine them not. Yeah, they 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 got I, I got it bad for them, real bad. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Hey, do you know about the six working geniuses? I'm trying to remember Patrick Lencioni. Is this a pastoral joke or is it? No, a oh no, not at all, not at all. Like Patrick an from your sermon yesterday. <laughs> no, Patrick Lencioni. Uh, from the Table Group podcast and, you know, the five uh, whatever of a team, all these. He's developed this thing about the six working geniuses. And uh, no, they're not people. They're, everyone has a Everyone, he says, has two of the six genius traits. Oh. And everybody has kind of two more, but not really all that well. And then there are two that they just don't. But one of those is wonder. Oh. And you sound like a guy who has the that gift of wonder, because some people they don't wonder and they don't mm. really care to think about wondering. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and people that wonder is they they don't understand that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I we could talk a long time about about wonder. You know, we'll get around to this book, but in the book, I I it's the word that I use for the aesthetical pleasure that we derive from beautiful things, the energy that inside the delight, the relish, the savoring, I would argue it's not, this isn't part of the book. I'd love to write this book sometime that wonder is an essential quality of a gospel preacher. 
And if you ever lose your wonder in the gospel that God would save us first, but make the offer and you know all the glory of the incarnation and the, the redemptive plan of God and the, the whole, if, if we ever lose wonder in that, we should step out of the pulpit and never preach again. I am a big fan of wonder, and I think a proper theology and appreciation of wonder would do all of us a whale of a lot of good and probably uh, enhance our ministry, both publicly and privately. Do you ever sit as you're studying a passage and that wonder starts to kick in and you, you're, you're looking, it's like you're looking into the depth of the sea and you'll never see the bottom, but you see enough to realize there's so much beneath that and then feel like a little bit hopeless as to ever be able to like communicate this from you and your heart into the people that you're going to have to talk to. Mm, yeah. No, Has I, that I ever happened about- to you? If, well, I, yes, and and I think as a biblical example, you, you know, Paul. So here's Paul writing Romans, and you know he explains one through eleven in the probably the greatest depth of any explanation ever of how God saves sinners, and he gets to the end and he just says, "How unsearchable are his riches? How inscrutable are his ways?" He just bursts forth in this kind of yeah. doxology that tells you that he's a human being, you know, like he's really swept up in the wonder of what God has, uh, has done. You know, I'll be honest. I wish I had that every Sunday. I honestly don't have it every Sunday, but I want it every yeah. Sunday, you know, in the, in the grind of preaching in your first year, every sermon is wonder. And, you know, it's a wonder that you get to do it. I would say that one of the challenges over long-term ministry, you know, when you're, when you're doing your 25th Christmas Eve message, yeah, right. Uh, when you're doing your, you know, your 20th Easter message, and it's the third time you've preached that passage to your same congregation, it is one of the challenges and the prayers that we need to have is God, renew my wonder uh, in this and never let my heart grow cold. I remember years ago, I saw this pastor and he was leading the Lord's Supper and I could tell he was totally, he, he mailed it in. Like, I mean, <laughs> he, he was so going through the motions uh-huh. that, and I knew it like, and, and, and I just was like, you know, this was me as a young man. I'll never do that. I'll never be that. Yeah. Good. But now after all these years, there is a tension there that uh, we would ever become, you know, too familiar with sacred things. And uh, I think think you have to fight against that all the time. So to the point of wonder, though, in, in study, I know that it's going to be a great sermon when my heart surges with wonder. Those are the best ones because my heart's filled with it. I want it every week. Uh, I wish I had it every week. Sometimes I'm just grinding it out. But yeah, when my heart is captured by it, the people hearing sense it. And they, I think their heart sings along with, with mine. So like I preached through Romans, I, t- I took three and a half years preaching through Romans, got done about was well, two years ago. And uh, boy, that's a book filled with wonder, truly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes in uh, the genealogies of Matthew or something, it can be a little more challenging, but uh, <laughs> yeah. grinding through Leviticus. Uh, but uh, no, I, I think that, Searching for it, asking the Holy Spirit for it is a good pastoral discipline. How far ahead is your sermon calendar planned out for? Well, 
further than it used to be. You know, when when we were one campus, I was the only preacher. I could preach at whatever rate I wanted. I didn't have it planned out very far at all. But now we have all this coordination between, you know, the the campuses, the campus pastors, their vacation schedule, the tech team, mm. and the, you know, because we we stream half of them and we preach live half. So we kind of are habsies. That's our approach to it. Okay. And uh, so I, it has to be planned out. It's probably, I think we're planned through the end of June at this point. Okay. Yeah. I just talked last week to Jim Cimbala from the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And uh, what a character. I was not, I was not expecting the character that I encountered when I talked to him, you know, he wrote this, this book, fresh wind, fresh fire. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this guy's church is based on prayer and I'm going to have this guy who's just kind of floating a foot off the ground, just kind of landed in the seat and talked to me. And this guy is a scrappy New York city pastor, been there for over 50 years. And you had to said, throw that out. My 25 now is, you know, right. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, you know, some guys, they may have their stuff all planned out ahead. Well, more power to them, but I just don't see how it works that way. And he's just going on and on. He was fantastic. He was just, it, it was wonderful. And, you know, it's a both and. It's always a both and. If I had my preference, I wouldn't plan at all. I would just slowly work through it at the pace that I want. That's what I, I think I this is do. what he's doing. I think it yeah. is. Pray about it and, you know. But I don't think he goes verse by verse either. He's, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know his ministry. Well yeah, to the answer to that. Of course, my hero Spurgeon didn't either. You know, uh, Spurgeon <laughs> was not really an expositor, I would say, but he was so doctrinally rich that nobody minded. <laughs> well, I used the term erudite earlier before we started recording. Oh man, you read his messages. You know, he he gives two words, sometimes one word, and then he goes on for pages. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's unusual. Nobody can really no, yeah. chart his core his ship's course by by this guy. Yeah, you know no, for he, sure. He, yeah, again, I, I Spurgeon's one of my heroes. I could go at length on on him, but he certainly is the Everest. He's the Mount Everest, and yeah, not it's you know every other hill or mountain out there doesn't want to compare to to Everest. So well, and and this is before computers. Before word processors, and somehow they typed all this stuff out. I mean, the guy was voluminous. He's the most prolific author in the English language. And most, not all, but most of what was published was, you know, was written down. They had they had four or five people with pens in hand as he preached. And uh, oh, man. Would, they, they would conflate them, and then they would submit them to Spurgeon, and he would edit it. And then it would go into papers all over the world. I actually have in my office on the wall, I have one of his sermons with his own handwriting. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, you take this out. Yeah. yeah, So, uh, yeah. he's So even that, though, even describing that process, they spent a lot of time just on that process Mm -hmm. based on all of his published works. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, It's It's unbelievable. So I have a, get this, I have in my office, I have a biography that was written on Spurgeon and we can tell it's an original uh, first edition. It was written, it was published when he was 22 years old. That means they started writing it when he was like, what, 20, maybe 
And just to tell you the star, you know, the popularity of him when he's yeah. in early twenties, they're already writing books about him. Yeah, I could, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate Spurgeon. So, well, having said that, I do have to say that in my office, I have a biography on Lincoln that was published and printed in 1866, the year after his death. So that's kind of my prized possession mm. for you, you, original sources. You didn't sources. buy it, Jeff, when it came out, did you? No, I didn't, but uh, I bought it from a guy who did. So you don't that, that old to me. So that counts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you bought it so, from a guy that bought it when it came out. No, no, no. Even no that would no. be amazing. No, but my grandfather was born in the 1800s. So, so there you go. Wow. That's kind of fun. Steve, you wrote this book called "Enjoying God in Everything: A Guide to Maximizing Life's Pleasures." It it reminded me of um, Shigematsu's book. I'm trying to think of his first, Ken Shigematsu wrote uh, God in My Everything, hmm. and it's a book on reflection and the contemplative life. Um, so enjoying God in everything. And I got word of this book, and I looked at it, and I thought, well, this is kind of this, is kind of this, lofty, this lofty kind of writing. And I said to myself, you know, we don't, we don't deal in this enough. We don't talk enough about thinking about thinking and thinking about worshiping and wondering about God and wondering about the Trinity and God's beauty. And you talk about cre- creation and the you talk about you use a word like aesthetics. Who uses the word aesthetics except for professional people that use that vocabulary? And I just did a uh, a little bit of research recently and saw that so many pastors do not have sufficient formal education, and so many do not have advanced degrees. And they're in the grit and grizzle and the grind. You just use the term grind of preaching. You know, they're in the grind of ministry. I just think it's good for us. I'm, I always promote additional education. You know, I always promote uh, continuing ed. But I thought it would be really good to talk to a guy like you who's taken the time to write a book like this and talk to us about this book Tell us what the big idea of the book is and what the motivation was. Because you could have written a lot of books. You've done a lot of study and a lot of preaching over a lot of years, but you wrote a book on maximizing life's pleasures. Hmm. And somehow you've connected it biblically, theologically, even maybe ontologically to God. Hmm. Talk to us about it. Well, that was a softball question. Thank you very much for that. Well, I think it's I kind of a hard that, question. Take it's that probably a hard of, book to you know, write. I mean, there's a lot. I, I could take that a lot of different directions, but um, let me let me summarize first of all why I wrote it, and then I'll talk about what I wrote. Okay. So why I wrote it began very personally to me, as you pointed out earlier. You sensed that maybe I was a, a wonder. I think you said genius, not me. That's your words, not me. Well, that's your genius. That's your working yeah, that's genius. Is wonder. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. But um, no, I, I feel deeply. And over the years, I experience beautiful things, beautiful things in God's creation, beautiful things in man's creation, art and media, etc. And the faith tradition that I grew up in was 
I would say quietly Gnostic. It was suspicious of anything that uh, moved the body, that took pleasure in something that was possibly carnal, you know, and it should mm. be avoided. And so as I experienced these things, not in a sinful way, but just in a human way, I didn't have a good category for what do I do with this? And what is this? And why do I feel this? And so I began looking into this whole broad category of beauty. And it led me from the beauty of the sunset to the beauty of, of God. And since we're talking to pastors, I'll share that I became convinced that evangelical churches and evangelical pastors have largely overlooked this wonderful dimension of the character of God. We are famous in evangelicalism for the grace of God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We all got that. Uh, the love of God, you know, we pick John 3.16 as our, you know, that's our main verse in the Bible. It's a good verse. So the love of God, we're solid on that. Uh, and you could throw in mercy and wrath and a bunch of other ones in there. And so our view of God has, you know, these qualities, all of them true, but broadly Protestantism, I would say, and especially uh, low church Protestantism, which is my my background, um, and I think yours too, if I read your bio right. Yes. Uh, I have ignored the beauty of God. And the result of that, because there's a there's a there's a stream here, when you ignore the beauty of God, you end up experiencing the created reflections of the beauty of God and you don't know what to do with them. And you miss out on the benefits and the glory and the wonder and the joy and the worship that God intended for these things to be, for them to be platforms for worship, stepping off points for for worship, which enhances, it should enhance the experience of the beauty itself. And that's partly why I say a, a guide to maximizing life's pleasures is that I have the conviction that that Christians should live in this wonderland, this creation, and we should be famous for have, deriving the most pleasure from it. And I think we're famous for not deriving the most pleasure from it. Hmm. We're on the other end of that, and it shouldn't be that way. Uh, And the reason I say that is that Christians uniquely can connect the pleasure that we experience in the created order with the creator of it in the first place. And when we do that, when our pleasure becomes worship, it is what God designed it to be. It is what Adam and Eve experienced every day in that Garden of Eden. They were not atheists walking around the Garden of Eden. Adam was not an atheist when he saw Eve naked for the first time. Uh, that was a moment of worship for Adam. And all the other pleasures of the Garden that they experienced, they experienced them theologically. They connected who God is, his goodness, his glory. Uh, his generosity, his creativity. They connected their experience of the food and the and the sunrise with the God who made them. And in the gospel, Christians are restored 
to that capacity to enjoy pleasures for God's sake, which makes the pleasures more pleasurable. What are the things that we wrestle with as people who are low church Christians? What's the, what are the pathologies that keep us from enjoying those things? Well, I don't know if it's a pathology. I would say it's more of a compartmentalizing of pleasure and a failure to connect the experiences that we we all love them. I mean, it's it doesn't matter. Uh, we're human beings. We are made, we are wired in the image of God, and we're wired to respond to reflections of what God is like with delight. And lo and behold, every atom in this universe is made by God, Romans 1, to indicate what his divine character is like. Everything in this world is saying something in some way about God. As Calvin said, the the universe is filled with the sparks of the glory of God. We live amongst it every single day. And low church people enjoy their coffee just like high church people enjoy their coffee. And low church people enjoy their, uh, you know, the athletics and they enjoy their landscaping and all the rest, just like, you know, high church folks do, etc. I think the compartmentalizing in low church Protestantism has, has uh, as I said earlier, has, has come from a I think a an improper view of holiness and a compartmentalizing of the pleasure in the country music, the pleasure in the watermelon or whatever it might be. We're not making the connection between that and God and our faith. We experience them like atheists experience. And, you know, the atheists of the world love watermelon and the atheists of the world love sunsets. And they look at it and they go, look, that's a beautiful sunset. But a Christian a properly informed and, and discipled Christian is going to see that sunset, and this is what the book's about, and connect the dots in their soul to, to God. And it becomes an act of worship. So the main point of the book is beauty leads to wonder, wonder leads to worship. At least it's supposed to. That's how we were made. When In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, that internal worship thing broke. And Romans 1, ever since, we worship the created thing instead of the creator. And so the whole world loves, you know, why why is beachfront property so expensive? (laughs) Everybody wants it. And, uh, you know, why are the tickets to concerts so expensive? Because we love audio beauty. And, you know, the, if you think about it from that perspective, the Grammys last night, which I don't watch, I don't really like it, but I know it was it was it was there. Why is that such a big deal in our culture and the Oscars and all that? Because art is, you know, we we see human expression and, and we 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 love it. Image bearers love it. We're made to love it. But Romans one says that we it stops there. And so we worship the artist and we worship the director. So we love Beyonce and we love Spielberg and we love the you know Patrick Mahomes and we love you know political figures and we admire the all of these things but that's where it stops and second corinthians 4 if you're a christian you have seen the glory of god in the face of jesus the blinders have come off moses had a veil okay moses had a veil but in the gospel the, the veil goes away and now 
I see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so part of the book is about the beauty of Christ, which I think is really critical uh, because Jesus is the most beautiful physical expression of what God is like, even more than us. Okay, we, we have the image of God. He is the image of God. And so once we see what true beauty is, Jesus, his death on the cross, his sacrifice, his love, it opens our hearts and our minds and our souls to see all the reflections of what he is like in this world. And for that, to, that's restored in by the Holy Spirit in us. And now we can, Romans 1, give God honor, give God thanks to worship the creator uh, through the created thing and not worship the created thing itself. And so I try to get practical in the book on how to how to do that. I think it is a little bit of a learned discipline, mm-hmm. but it is so much of it is just instinctual. It's part of the wiring of an image bearer. So that's what the book's about in a nutshell. Beauty leads to wonder, wonder leads to worship. So when you're writing this book, why do you think in the life of a believer, beauty doesn't lead to wonder and wonder doesn't lead to worship? Is it just the compartmentalization thing and you're trying to kind of crack that code for people? Why do you think it so often doesn't? Is it is it certain movements and groups that kind of have a certain philosophy or worldview that prevents them from making that making that leap? Well, I, I think it's a it's a complex thing. In some cases, I do think it is that it's a, it's certainly a discipleship issue, and that's one reason on this podcast I want to encourage pastors to help your people, you know, with this and. It's uh, once their eyes come open to it, it's like, aha, you know, because I think everybody kind of knows there's something going inside at the church potluck at the strawberry pie. There's something going inside with me. I'm loving this. Help people experience those things uh, for God's sake. But so I think it is a discipleship issue. I do think that there are faith traditions that are uh, more, I don't know, by DNA, a little bit more uh, focused on beauty. And the beauty of God. Now, unfortunately, some of them, I wouldn't agree with a lot of their other doctrines, uh, the Orthodox Church being one example. But I think it's not so much about the strawberry pie. You don't start there. You start with God. Talk about God. Refer to God as being beautiful in your prayers. Lord, we thank you for your beauty. Okay, And you don't necessarily mean the sunset. You mean the intrinsic beauty of God. Maybe we should talk about that a second. Can okay. I, mind if yeah. I vamp, can I vamp on this a moment? Oh, please do. Please okay. do, because I'm looking to to bring it from the vapor to like water, something okay. we can hold and Practical. then drink. Right. So when it comes to the beauty of God, this is also a challenge because we typically think of beautiful things that are sensory. I, I see it. I taste it, I hear it, that's beautiful. When we think about the beauty of God, this is um, a spiritual description of the glory of God. I write in the book about God's beauty being more of a summary quality than a uh, specific description. So if his grace is great, and it is, and his goodness is great, and his mercy and his love, when you put any one of those individually are beautiful, like a flower individually is beautiful. 
but a bouquet of flowers is more beautiful. And the beauty of God is a description of the sum perfections of the character of God. And it's kind of like glory. I think glory is a similar term. When we think of the glory of God, we're, we're talking about the glory of his mercy, his love and wrath and all this. Beauty, similarly, is a summary term for the intrinsic worth, the intrinsic goodness of God. We know this was important to him because he made a beautiful universe. This is not an ugly universe. This is a beautiful universe. And we know that he gave us these senses that perfectly align with a visual, audio, uh, tasting universe that we live in. And so all of that is not by chance. It is by God's design. So we start with the beauty of God. Then we understand the fall. Then we understand the beauty of Jesus. And then we can see how the gospel restores this capacity for enjoying beauty for God's sake. And that's the progression. So I think if you just say, you know what, praise God for the strawberry pie, people will do it once or twice. But if you can help them have wonder at the beauty of God, now you're on to something because now they can enjoy that beauty everywhere that they see it, hear it, taste it, touch it. And that's the goal. And I think that's that's what the new earth is going to be. It's exciting to think about that, you know, it's a sensory new earth that we're going to live on and we're going to have glorified bodies. And I don't think we're going to just roam the earth or whatever we're doing and, and do it uh, atheistically. We are going to be actively connecting all of this amazing beauty and the grace of God, and we're going to give him praise. And that's that's the goal is worship. I'll pause there. I think I, if, if I talk too long, tell me I. No, get, this is good. I get excited about uh, these things. So, well, i i don't I don't bring guests on so that they can hear me talk. So I enjoy it, and if I I figure if I'm learning, then the listeners are learning, hmm. and I'm one of them. So, just for the fun of it, define wonder in terms of how you see that when you talk about wonder. You want people to wonder about God. You want your church family. Mm. You want them to walk out and be more filled with wonder. Describe wonder. You're at the Iowa Hawkeye game. It's the end of the first quarter. 60,000 people turn to wave to kids in the cancer floor at the children's hospital. And there's a hush that comes over the whole place. And everybody knows there's something transcendent to the game that is happening as those kids wave back. That feeling inside is wonder. It is a, it's a broad term to describe our inner relish at the created expressions of God, but it's not just the created expressions. Uh, we wonder at love. We wonder at sacrifice. We wonder at the ways of God and the mysteries of God and so it, it, it's reductionistic to view it simply as my saliva glands responding to the Starbucks coffee. It is a very broad term for what image bearers feel inside when they are close to expressions of what God is like. And It's akin the, to awe, the way you're describing yeah, it. No, I, I think that's, and, and it comes in big and small ways. You know, there's the there's the awe of uh, the hot shower in the morning, and then there's the awe of your child being born. You know, there. Mm. 
Yeah. But it's the same thing. It's a difference of scale and, and significance. So for the people who, for the people who missed your illustration, tease that out just a little bit for those who have never been to an Iowa Hawkeyes game, what, what happens? Okay. Well, first of all, they should repent of not watching Iowa football. <laughs> I mean the kids, the yeah. kids. Yeah. Tell us about okay. that. Well, uh, so the Iowa Children's Hospital, I think there might be a name for it. I can't remember, but it, they built it right next to the stadium for the, of the Iowa Hawkeyes. And it's uh, tall enough that it, it basically overlooks the stadium. And after they built it, somebody wrote the athletic department and said, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if we all turned and waved to the kids? Well, as many Iowa Hawkeye fans know, Kirk Ferentz had a, had a child that, uh, that dealt with childhood cancer, and he was all on board with it. Who's Kurt? Yeah, he's the coach of the Hawkeyes. Okay. Yeah. And so it really became a, a phenomenon. And I think it was named when they first started doing it, it was like ESPN's moment of the year hmm. because of this point that I'm making is that we crave transcendence. We crave something beyond the imminence of this grinding, death-filled world. And 60,000 people waving to kids with, with cancer and them waving back, you know, the, no, no hair on their heads and their parents behind them is for many people as close to the love of God as they're ever going to get. And yet their hearts wonder at it. They walk away and they say, that was one of the most meaningful things that I've ever done. Even though they were just one of 60,000, they'll never forget it. That's where I, I, I think the, the opportunity that pastors have to bring the wonder of the gospel of Jesus weekly to their people and some weeks it's better than others for all of us, but we can't give up on wonder. And I wish we all would talk about it more and, and preach about it. And so, so is that good? Yeah, no, that's, that's and I, I, well, while you were talking, I was thinking about yesterday and while I was speaking at one point, and my mind isn't good enough to remember what point I was making, but I was talking about similar to what you just said, people, they're amazed at sacrifice. You know, they're amazed at, at service. If somebody goes above and beyond in the extra mile and helps somebody, and if you throw in that the person was disabled, or if you throw in, you know, just it's a kid with cancer. We do, we do wonder at that stuff, and, and there's something inside of us because we bear the image of God that we are drawn to sacrifice. We'll do all the craziest things. Now, I'm talking about general public, not believers. We'll do all kinds of crazy things and have all kinds of sin issues and, and uh, you know pathological stuff going on in our heads, but almost all of us are drawn to those moments of service and sacrifice and devotion and generosity. Those are innately beautiful for us. And my thought was like, you know, why can't we live there? Why can't we? Because all of us, every person, unless, you know, you, you've got to be a cold hearted, pretty callous person to not be drawn to those things. And there are those people there are, but there's not very many of them 
in terms of the whole population, I don't think. I agree with you, brother. And here's an amazing thought. That sense of wonder and meaning that we occasionally get a sense of, again, waving at the, at the cancer kids, will be every second forever. That will be the internal experience of God's people in glory and even better. So I agree with you that, you know, why did the world leaders all traipse to Calcutta to get close to Mother Teresa? Just a small, humble woman serving lepers. There was something pro- profound about her life, and they all wanted to be mm. photographed with her. Or to use Abraham Lincoln, since you brought him up. Why did Abraham Lincoln go to downtown Chicago to see this ministry to children run by D.L. Moody as the president of the United States? There was something noble about a successful shoe salesman that wants to give his life to kids, rough, ruffians in downtown Chicago, and and a host of other examples of that. I think it is there is an inherent nobility that it speaks to our soul, and we are drawn to it. And if only our society could realize we're really drawn to God. We're not drawn. We're drawn to Mother Teresa, but we're really drawn, you know, to God. He's the one that we really want to be. Uh, we want to be close to, and all of these human expressions of self-giving are small in comparison to the Trinitarian self-giving that is infinite, abundant, eternal, and we get to be we get to be close to it forever. So, I think you know, thinking like that and preaching like that takes our people out of the humdrum of this world and puts mm-hmm. their souls and the feet of their souls yeah. in eternity. And uh, so that's great preaching. And I wish all my sermons got there. They don't, but uh, it's really yeah. special when they do. I've gotten to the point where I, I say often, the truth is so much better than the lies. Hmm. You know, in our society, there are a lot of lies and it seems as though, oh, the, those lies are better because, you know, God wants to limit you know, and God wants to prevent, but, you know, if you could only have this and that, and the truth is really so much more beautiful, so much more enjoyable, so much more blessed Mm -hmm. and wondrous than the lies that are deceiving so many people. You know, people know things, they learn things and they know stuff, so they write books. But sometimes in the writing of the book, they learn something that they didn't know. And I wonder, in the writing of this book, Enjoying God and Everything, did you learn something that you didn't know that like, was a big thing for you that you're like, wow, I learned this about God while writing this book? Well, truth be told, it's actually my second book on this subject. And I would say this book, uh, my first book on it, I, I wasn't married and I didn't have kids. Hmm. And I would say that one of the special things for me has been to think about this subject through the eyes of my children. Hmm. And so I have illustrations in the book, like, you know, my daughter, Kira Lee loves horses. Uh, We look at the clouds and I say, what do you see? Well, to her, every cloud looks like a horse. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, because it's in her heart. And similarly, when we love God, 
we can see him in the things of this world. That's the illustration. Or I end the book with the story of coming home from work and my my daughters you know, running up to me and kissing me and greeting me and saying, let's play hide and seek. And so I'd say, okay, let's play hide and seek. And off they scamper. I count to 10. Here I come. And uh, it's not very far after that, that all of a sudden I hear from under the ottoman, we're over here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, why do they do that? They do that because they want to be found. And I'm convinced that God made this universe so spectacular because he wants to be found. Hmm. And if we can see these things as a kind of breadcrumb trail that leads us back to him, not only can we find him, but we can find his son and uh, discover his grace and experience his salvation. And that's where beauty should lead us. That is that is nice. That, so, Pastor, you've just been given some illustrations for this weekend that you'll be a fool not to use. So uh, they can use those illustrations. Do they need to quote you? Uh, I have stolen more than I've created in my day, so <laughs> please feel free. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, the other side of it, you know, you said God wants to be found, but people want to be found too, right? Those girls wanted to be found by their dad. Mm. And sometimes, you know, the truth is better than the lie. The mm. truth is we do. We Some people do want to be found by their Heavenly Father. Mm. And all kinds of junk gets in the way of that. And it's tragic and it's sad. But uh, let's switch gears just a little bit, Steve. We're getting toward the end of our time. And you talked to me about your brother. And I think our listeners would be interested in this. He did a PhD, something to do with pastoral health and something to do with small churches. So talk to us about that for a minute. Wow. He would be way more qualified than me to, to talk. And I will that. get him on the podcast so you can yeah. preview it okay. for us. Well, my brother was a missionary in South America, came back and pastored in uh, Southern Minnesota. And now he pastors in central Nebraska, but uh, he did a, a PhD and his dissertation was on uh, on the subject of envy amongst small church pastors. And he did a lot of research. He interviewed a lot of, uh, of, of pastors in smaller churches just to ask, you know, describe for me what, it, what it's like. What do you struggle with? What is, what's the internal dynamic? He put it together. He wrote a, I forget how many pages. I'm not sure how he got. 200 pages out of uh, out of that, but he wrote a yeah. long, well-thought-out dissertation uh, that I think helps uh, pastors understand, you know, that that dynamic. I mean, that goes all the way back to Paul, right? He said, you know, I, I'm in jail and there's people out there preaching the gospel out of, uh, you know, they're, they're jealous of me. And so this has been a 2,000-year experience of pastoral ministry, but he focused on smaller church pastors and maybe their envy of the you know, the larger church nearby or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, you should have them on. I think it would be a benefit. I heard two pastors talking, and each of them admitted that for years and years and years, they were friends. They admitted that for years, they always thought the other one was a better pastor who had it all together. They were good friends, but 
they just really never went there with each other. But I always thought, I always felt like you had it all together. Like you just, you were better than me and you had it figured out. And the other one was like, no, I always thought that about you. Are you kidding me? I never thought, I don't have it all together. And they were both living in this envy, you know, this dream state where no, there's neither one of you, neither one of you are where you think you are. And neither one of you, neither one of you are where the other person thinks you are. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, you want to talk about beauty. There's something beauty and beautiful in relationships. Mm-hmm. And when you come together in true transparency and humility and openness and love for the other person, the beauty that can be found there and the encouragement and affirmation that can be found there is pretty amazing. Pretty fantastic. So th- thanks for that. Your your brother's name is? Scott DeWitt. Scott DeWitt. Yes. Are they, are they all S's in your family, Steve? <laughs> Just the two of us. <laughs> Scott Scott got all the looks, the brains, and the talent in the family. So I wondered about play. that. Yeah. yeah. It's not <laughs> what fair. What a lie. I'm jealous of him, you know, with all his good looks. <laughs> That's funny. Steve, as we land the plane here, what do you have to say uh, coming from the content of your book and the subject matter of your book, what do you have to say to pastors of ordinary-sized churches? Uh, I think it was George Whitfield who somebody said something about some other guy's ministry, and he said he may preach the gospel better, but he does not preach a better gospel. And I think that um, my sense of the spirit of this podcast is to encourage all pastors that uh, it is the same gospel, it is the same spirit, it is the same Jesus, and no matter where you're doing it, how many people are listening to it, uh, it is the you know it is the treasure that we hold in our jars of clay, and uh, that we should we should rejoice in the privilege of it. And so I, I hope all who listen that God would richly bless you and encourage you and provide uh, fruit and contentment. And I'm glad to have this little little ministry to you today. Well, Steve DeWitt, thanks for writing, enjoying God in everything. And I hope that a lot of our listeners are able to get, get a hold of that book and be amazed at what you've written. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. My privilege to be here. Well, Pastor, my takeaway from that conversation is basically spiritually speaking and existentially as well in the great outdoors stop and smell the roses to appreciate the beauty of God I think about this web telescope that that they have and I think in my podcast picture for this episode I I used one of those uh, web telescope pictures just amazing to stop and just wonder at the beauty of God, to be a little more contemplative and uh, meditate once in a while, just stop and pause and to be still, just to be still and to just be in the presence of God without doing anything, without saying anything, to notice the little things in life, like the laughter of your kids or your grandkids the sunset and sunrise, the change of the seasons, the amazement when you're healthy, 
and the amazement after you've been sick when you're healthy again and you're like, wow, it feels so good to feel better. Many of you struggle with chronic issues and with pain. Uh, Some of you deal with maybe depression or anxiety or panic or fear. Some of you are having relationship issues. To To just stop and sit with God and just to say, God, I'm leading this church. I need your help. I'm leading this church. Open my eyes so that I can see your beauty and so that I can see your beauty in everything. Give me a set of glasses to wear as I look at the world through my eyes that I would see your fingerprints all over everything and that I would be able to enjoy pleasure and beauty as you designed me to. And God, by the way, while you're at it, help me lead these people, right? Help me love and serve. Give me the strength. Give me the power. Steve DeWitt, thank you so much for just talking to us about about wonder, the wonder of God, the wonder of God. Pastor, thanks for listening today, and I'm going to catch up with you again next week on the 200 Churches Podcast. Well, hello, friend. My name is Angela, and I'm so glad you've stuck with us to the very end. We'd love to have you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Until next week, may God bless you as you lead and love His church.